Hello, my name is Alan Swan and welcome to The Outer View, a show all about the art of media interviewing on RTE Radio 1 Extra. Now, my God, have we got a, uh, a treat for you this week. And this is no disrespect to any of our previous guests, but this is one of the most exciting interviews I've ever done with, in my opinion, the de facto person for celebrity interviews, Lynn Barber. It's a fir- This is a, f- a long time since I was nervous doing an interview. And I don't know why I was. Lynn was an absolute treat, uh, uh, fantastic interviewee. And must be strange for Lynn, actually, when she's the other side of the microphone. So I hope I did her justice. Lynn... If you don't know who Lynn Barber is, I suppose the back of her book, A Curious Career, the biog, sums her up beautifully, the first part of it, which I'll read to you now. Lynn Barber, by her own admission, has always suffered from a compelling sense of nosiness. An exceptionally inquisitive child, she constantly questioned everyone she knew about intimate details of their lives. And this talent for nosiness, coupled with her unusual lack of the very English fear of social embarrassment, turned out to be the perfect qualification for a celebrity interviewer. Her career is incredible. I urge you uh, to buy The Wonderful Curious Career, which is a fascinating window into the lives of celebrities and the changing world of journalism. We get into it big time in the interview. I have to say, it's the first time I've, in a long time, that I was actually nervous doing an interview where an hour beforehand I was thinking, why did I, why did I book this interview? Why am I doing this? Why am I having the chats? And I suppose... Um, when you have such respect for somebody like Lynn Barber and the type of writing that she does. And listen, by the way, not everyone loves the style that she does, but I think it's just unique and brilliant. And we talk about everything from her, um, her early beginnings as a journalist to when she gave up in a journalist to become a full-time, a full-time mother. Her style, her unique style of questions. I'm fanboying it now, aren't I? <laughs> really just get into the interview so look let's get straight into it I'll talk more about uh, how I felt about doing the interview at the end of this if you're interested and a few other bits and bobs that we can discuss but for now here is my conversation with the wonderful Lynn Barber okay far away I think the word curious is a is a common thread through all the people that we've had on this show so far about the art right. of interviewing and it's it's no coincidence that, that your book is called a, a curious career and your career has indeed been that of of curiosity would it be fair to say that the word curious has been kind of central to your life yes absolutely I mean it's my uh, well also I think I've had quite a curious career but I mean I've made my living by interviewing which means being curious and I think that's probably the absolute key requirement for an interviewer um you're regarded as as one of the world's greatest interviewers, if you don't mind me saying, because and people say it about you a lot. Um, we'll we'll get to how that feels in a moment. But do you think your life experience, being an only child, those formative years, gave you something that journalists, other journalists, don't have, um, if they had siblings? Um. Well, I mean, some journalists have some, have some bits of it. I mean, there's plenty of them have been only ch- children, but I think. Um, I think probably I was more curious about other people than is normal, um, and that was partly from coming from a, not just being a, an only child, but coming from quite an isolated family. Um, m- my parents didn't seem to have any friends around or relatives around, so I was always very intrigued by other families. Um, and actually, I saw enough girls my own age at school so I wasn't so interested in them I was 
terribly interested in their parents, their brothers, things like that. And 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 was it something inside you that you you constantly wanted to ask questions? I know that sometimes that you one of your favorite things is to ask the question why. That if somebody gives you an answer in an interview that you're that you're trying to delve deeper, that you shouldn't be afraid of the word why. And 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 does that kind of make sense from when you were growing up that you always wanted to know more? Yes, absolutely. Yes, and I I do think why is just about the best question in the world. You know, somebody. Says they moved, you know, they left home and moved to London at fifteen. You know, I I say why. Lynn, let me let me take you back to uh, it was at Sherwell, which was the student newspaper back in Oxford. Sherwell, yeah. Sherwell. Yeah. Excuse my Irish pronunciation. Okay. <laughs> we can be a bit rough sometimes, you know. Um, okay. um, what was that? What was your? I presume that's where you did your first kind of proper interviews. Um, what were they like? Now that you've you've had so much experience, how do you feel when you think back on them? Well, it was probably quite embarrassing. Um, I remember interviewing the radio writer, Dennis Norden, um, but I, probably because I was very young and pretty and gauche and hopeless, but people were very kind to me as a result. Um, and, you know, gave me a lot of time and explained things properly. Um so I, I didn't do any great interviews for Charwell, but the one sort of important one I did was that I interviewed Bob Guccione, who had just started Penthouse magazine. And we got on really well. And he said, if you ever want a job, if you ever want a job, honey, come to me. <laughs> um, and, and actually, uh, it was very hard getting a job, so I did go to him, and he gave me a job at Penthouse, which lasted for seven years. And was uh, an unbelievable uh, training ground for... It for... was fabulous. Uh, it, it couldn't have been better, because the other thing about Penthouse was that it started with a staff of, say, four, I think it was four, of which I was the lowest member. Um, but it ended up with a staff of, 300 or even 400 of which I was I think I I was still number four but with a sort of enormous staff underneath me but in those early days we were all doing everything I mean I was actually doing layouts and cropping pictures and things like that I was also doing I was the literary editor I was the letters editor I was the reviews editor I had all these grand titles none of which really meant very much. But it did mean that I tried my hand on every bit of a magazine production. And I also, at Penthouse, learned something which most journalists never learn, which is a sort of reverence, well, not a reverence exactly, but I knew that you had to have advertising. I knew that our salaries wouldn't be paid unless we had advertising. You were living living in the real world. I was living in the real world. And... Um, and so I do get quite cross with, you know, journalists who talk as though adverts are just these things that spoil the smooth run of their pages because they're what, what's paying for it. Absolutely. And I suppose we, we have a lot of media students that would listen into this podcast, Lynn, and I think it's a vital lesson that nowadays the media student of 2016, you know, just thinks it's all... Uh, you know, when you look at bloggers, say for instance, and people who are starting off in the business now, they they have one tunnel view vision of what journalism is. Whereas, you know, back when you started off, 
that that experience of doing everything from the editing to layout to probably trying to get a bit of advertising into the magazine uh, at the time, uh, using every bit of the experience you could get, made you the writer that you are today. It, well, yes, it was certainly good background. I'm not sure it made me the writer I am today. The person, I mean, specifically at Penthouse, there was an editor, the editor, because Guccione didn't really. Um, Guccione edited chose the pictures and edited the the girl pages but the the editor who was responsible for everything else was called Harry Fieldhouse and he was a wonderful teacher to me because um I had a sort of girlish gift of fluency I could write very fluent lively sort of babble what I think of as babble um but he sort of trained me to make it much sharper, not to use unnecessary words, not to keep saying things were wonderful or amazing or all the rest. He was very critical um, and just made me tighten up my style an awful lot. And it was it was a good training, actually. I'm very grateful. And, and the style of magazine it was as well, Lynn, you know, obviously it was a lot more liberal then uh, a lot of public oh, sure. <laughs> a lot of publications yeah, it of wasn't those days. anything like the skin flicks or the skin magazines of today though i mean it was relatively it was like it was based on playboy it was an out and out copy of playboy really uh, and as well like astonishingly your first kind of celebrity interview for that magazine was salvador, salvador Dali. like where yes. and that was extraordinary actually and it was based on a completely wrong assumption that Guccione said, you speak French, don't you? Um, And I said, hmm. I mean, I had got A-level French, but I wouldn't really say I spoke French. Um, But he thought that because because Dali was staying in Paris, he thought that, I don't know why, he he thought he must speak French. In fact, Dali didn't speak French. He spoke reasonably good English, heavily accented so there was no need for speaking French but anyway he sent me off to Paris and I was meant to go there there and back in a day and Dali kept inviting me to stay and got me a room at the Hotel Maurice and invited me to all these parties and I just had a wonderful wonderful time. That's uh, like uh, nowadays that would never happen would those long form four day style interviews happen anymore? No, they don't. Yeah. It's really sad. Actually, it could have happened with Dali, I think, because if he liked somebody, he he quite liked sort of gathering people around him. So, you know, he... And he certainly didn't have PRs and everything controlling mm. things with a stopwatch. So it could conceivably happen with Dali, but it wouldn't nowadays happen with anyone else, I can't think. And he gave you a beautiful present at the time, I believe, that was traditionally yeah, worth a few quid. Yeah, he gave me this, which I still got, um, oh, wow. this wonderful conical hat with um, covered in wax flowers and with butterflies sticking up out of it um, that he'd made as a fan- for, for Gala, his wife, to wear to a fancy dress ball. And, um, yeah, he just gave it to me and I've had it ever since and I'm very proud of it. Um, at the moment, I, I've, I did this podcast about the art of interviewing because I've always been fascinated by by the conversations and curious like yourself uh, yeah. and what you can learn about other people. And I suppose while I'm doing this series, I'm trying to find my own voice when I'm doing it. And it, it, it struck me how the story of how you found your own voice. What, when was the moment when you realised to go from uh, the third to the first person? Was, um, 
a bit later on, um, after, I mean, I worked at Penthouse and I had some years off when I had children. Um, and then I went back to work for Sunday Express magazine. And they asked me to interview Bob Guccione, who by then had moved to New York and was um, being very successful, actually, at that stage um, in New York. And so I went to interview him, and it just seemed ridiculous to write it in the third person, which is what I'd been doing all the time up till then. It, I mean, I think I wanted, I had to say that I worked for him for seven years, you know, that I knew him pretty well, yeah. and also to recount the early days of Penthouse when we were just in a sort of tiny little terrace house with stacks of cardboard boxes everywhere. Um, and now he has a very grand house in New York and grand offices. And and also our conversation was based on the fact that, you know, I sort of said, my God, you've given up smoking and things, which I just couldn't have done if I hadn't known him. So I said, I, I want to write this as a first-person piece. I want to say I. Um, and the editor thought, because there's... It was a general feeling in those days that that was terribly, terribly amateurish yeah. to to have a an eye in there. And I said, well, I'm, just let me try it my way. And then if you feel it doesn't work, I'll write it your way. And actually, the editor read it and just said, great. You know, so I never had to try to write in the third person. And then from then on, I just wrote everything in the first person. And I thought, because also I think with interviews, it is a, it is a conversation. So you can't pretend um, to be objective or to, or to not be there. You know, you yes. can't... Um, so, uh, and I, and I think sort of increasingly I rely on, uh, a sort of psychic temperature gauge whereby I, I think about how this person has made me feel. And then I wonder about why, why they've made me feel that. Um, and I, I find that quite reliable, but it, you know, when I started, people were still slagging me off the whole time and saying it was so egotistical to put myself in. And you know, she writes about herself; she doesn't write about the subjects, which is, I don't think, is true or fair at all. But that I, I do have to have to be there, yeah. as it were. Otherwise. Who are they talking to? Yeah, and presumably for the person who's reading the piece, you, I, I, and I don't mean to be presumptuous, I presume you want them to be in the room with you to, exactly. to a certain extent. Exactly. And I used to do, a, a, very early on, I used to do a series called Things I Wish I'd Known at in, which was um, that sort of back of the book interview, which is just one long quote. Do, do you know what I mean? Where I tape record somebody and then sort of stitch it together so it's just one quote with that and I'd come back from those interviews and everyone in the office would say what was he like you know I'd interview I don't know Ray Richardson or John Gielgud or something and everyone would say what would he like and I and it was the things I was telling them you know that sort of that he kept he was trying to make me drunk or <laughs> or he smelt funny or you know, I mean, those sorts of details were what everyone wanted to hear, but they weren't going in. 
And then increasingly, I have put that sort of thing in, yeah. Because people want the nuances, don't they? Yeah, and also, um, I mean, if I now read a, a, a sort of third-person interview, it does seem very stilted to me. We had to use these weird locutions, like your reporter, you know, when your reporter arrived, he said blah, blah, blah. And it just sounds crazy now, yeah, I think. it's very stilted. Um, mm. be- between Penthouse and doing that interview for the Sunday Express, were you scared that you'd taken such a break from from that world to raise your family, um, to, to remove yourself from that, and if, remove yourself from yeah. that bubble? Were, were you scared going back? Were you scared getting on that plane to do that interview in New York? Um, well, I mean, by then I'd done quite a few other interviews. It wasn't the first interview I did for Sunday Express. I mean, I was scared about going back to work having been a playgroup mum for five years, yeah. actually. Um, I mean, that's always scary. But it was very good that Harry Fieldhouse, the editor who'd been so kind to me at Penthouse, was by then working for the Sunday Express, and it was him who got me in, you know. So that was great. Um uh, jumping on play, I'm I'm more scared of it now. Actually, I mean, in those days, I was always happy to jump on a plane and for whatever reason, basically. <laughs> um, do you mean am I sort of intimidated by people? No, um, not, not in the slightest. No, no. I'm, I'm just I'm I'm interested in you know people who who stop their career. Um, for what that, for whatever reason, be it health, be it family, being raising families, and then you know something yeah. that, that you're doing nonstop, nonstop, nonstop. And this is everything from from professional sports people to authors to um, you know to stopping what you do, which is in essence your core, um, yeah. and then you stop it for a while, almost be, become a different person, and then be expected to kind of get on the bike again without the stabilizers. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it was hard, and I and actually it was. Because Harry Fieldhouse rang me up one day and sort of said he'd got this new job at the Sunday Express magazine and did I want to come work for them. I don't know what I would have done otherwise, actually. I mean, I don't know. I can't imagine that I would have applied for jobs or anything. Um, You'd make a good psychiatrist. Yes, I hope so. Uh, Well, I'm good at listening to people and genuinely interested, but... When people say that, the the other thing is that if you're a psychiatrist or a psychotherapist or something, you do also have to be able to offer some sort of cure Absolutely, or some improvement, advice. which I wouldn't be <laughs> yeah. very good at. So, uh, you, uh, you, you've stated in the past, Lynn, that, you, that you, in, you enjoy the research so much, more so than the actual interview itself. Can, can you take us through your methods? Because a lot of people that will listen to this will be, will be journalists or media students or people starting well, off. Well, yes, but for them, it's to, you know, my yeah. idea of doing complete research was getting the cuttings file, which was you know, all the interviews they'd previously done, this person had previously done, and just reading my way through it. And then I felt I'd done my research. And I like to do, as well, as much as I could, because um, you could often save yourself asking questions if they'd already answered fully about, you know, where they went to school and things. Um, but, of course, now half of it's on Twitter and Facebook and God knows what. And... I actually can't really do that. I mean, I but but for young people today, that's what they should be getting on top of. Yeah. Um, because often I'd be sort of. I'm just saying, when was the last time it happened? 
Oh, it hasn't come out yet, but I interviewed um, Katie Price. Do you know Jordan? Yes, yes, I do. As was. Um, and somebody said you ought to see all her tweets. And I said, oh, my God. You know, and that's another however many million hours work. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so I'm a bit sort of shaky about research now. Um, there's so much. Mm, there's so much to do. And I suppose if there are... Um, yeah, if there are people like actors or television or something, you have to just watch endless um, stuff on YouTube. Yeah, and, and I suppose you have to be careful as well that, the, you know, possibly that the, the voice that, say, Katie Price has on Twitter or that the persona that she gives online could be completely different to the Katie Price that you sit down in front of when you meet them. Yes, I think that probably is true, yes. Um, but... Anyway, I mean, the problem of research has, has definitely gotten an awful lot worse, I think. Uh, one of the things that you, you say as well, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that, it, that if people don't bring enough enthusiasm, that enthusiasm it can be a great tactic to bring with you, that a lot of uh, you know, journalists forget that you know, they have to be enthusiastic about the person that they're interviewing because otherwise you're going to get off on the wrong foot, um, that you have to show a little bit of enthusiasm, that it's, it's kind of key to disarming whoever you're interviewing. Absolutely, absolutely, and and curiosity, and something I like to do early on in the interview is to sort of show that I've done a lot of homework, so I'll quote back something rather they said in a previous interview, but also, yes, enthusiasm, curiosity, and I am amazed sometimes when people interview me how they start from a position of boredom, so I'm bored, you know, um, and I I I also feel I have this thing that you have to um, energize an interview, especially with people who've been interviewed to death. You know, people who've done so many billions of interviews. Yeah. You have to somehow inject the energy into it um, and get them thinking and get get them interested in themselves. And a sort of question I might ask is sort of. The thing I've always wondered about you is why, as I said, um, and in a way try to get them to explain themselves rather than um, than me just firing questions at them. Yeah, because one of the, some some of the questions that I I love some of the questions that you ask that that that, com- that they seem completely normal questions but you would never think of you know do you prefer being a host or a guest what do you spend your money on uh, like yeah. the, the story that, that you did about um, is it uh, Lionel Shriver the novelist Shriver, yeah. Shriver the yeah. novelist like I just thought that the detail in just the observation of can you tell us about that story about the central heating because I think it's a really fascinating way of approaching somebody <laughs> when you interview well I sort of tweaked from something else that she said that she um she, she prides herself on being frugal, you know, um, not spending money unnecessarily, and she likes recycling things and all the rest of it. Um, and I can't remember how, but I, um, I said something about um, when do you put the heating on or something, and then she started saying she never puts the central heating on. It has to actually be below freezing. And even then, she doesn't put, won't put it on before 7 o'clock at night. And so I went into all these details about, you know, under what conditions would you put the central heating on. And 
the other extraordinary thing is that she actually has a disease or a syndrome, I think it's called. I think it's called Raynaud's syndrome, which okay. means that she has permanently cold hands and feet and has to wear gloves. So given that she's cold anyway and goes easy. out of her way yeah. <laughs> in a really cold house. I hope, I, hope you're, I hope you're wearing a vest that day to, to keep yourself mm-hmm. to keep yourself warm. Actually, we met, no, I didn't go to her house. We met in a restaurant. But anyway, and uh, I'm glad you like that. But some people sort of said, oh, you did go on rather about her central heating. But I, when I get stuck into something like that, I think I am actually um, finding out quite a lot about the person, um, and I felt I did so with that. Yeah, because it's really interesting, you know, because people always want to know when you interview some, somebody and you say something very unique about them, they go, God, did you know about that? I didn't know about that at all. Wow. And, yeah. it, and it opens up another line of kind of questioning. Um, going back to meeting that novelist in a restaurant, and one of the, the, the epic mistakes that I've, that I've made in this interview so far, Lynn, that I, I, I presume, oh. you've, presume you've noticed it straight away, is that I'm not meeting you in person. I haven't come to your home. Mm. Um, which is, you know, if I could, I'd be on a plane uh, over to no, London. And maybe, and, and maybe the next time I might, I, if possible, I, I'd love to meet you in person and do this interview in person. But one of the things that you say is try and meet your interviewee in their home because it just gives you so much to work with. It does. But increasingly nowadays, they people won't. won't. Um, and they usually give an excuse about burglars. But I think also <laughs> that... <laughs> if somebody's made some snarky remark about their home um, in the past, you know, they're aware of it. it it's really quite rare. I've, actually, I've just interviewed Margaret Drabble at home, and that was quite interesting. Um, but, yeah, no, I, I mean, I try, I try to go to their homes, but I don't often succeed nowadays. Which, which is the line that you draw, which, which I love about you, about, uh, ethically, okay? So you can, you can go into somebody's home, you can have a little bit of a nose, and anyone in the world will have a little sneak peek into what type of tales a person would have. But, you've, yeah. but I, what I admire about you is during all the scandals of phone hacking, during all the scandals of people, you know, or the, just the, 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 the horrible doorstepping that some journalists do, you've never gone down that road. No, but I don't want to sound very pious about mm. it. It's just that, um, you know, because, A, I like reading that stuff. Um, <laughs> and, um, you know, I love a good scandal. But you didn't work um, for any tabloids. But I've never worked with tabloids, you know, and I wonder if if as a young journalist I'd been, I don't know, told to go through somebody's dustbins. I don't, actually, I don't think that happened in those days, but, um, you know, whether I would have, I don't don't think I would have, actually, I don't think I was ever that keen. (laughs) Yeah, talking of the journalists of today, Lynn, um, who do you read now or watch or listen to when you go, yes, that person gets it? They get yes. what we do for Well, anything. my younger colleague, Camilla Long, on the Sunday Times is really good. Um, she's mainly, she's, she's not doing so many interviews now because she's also become the film critic and a columnist. Um, but she did an interview with Julie Cooper the other week where I thought, actually, that's better than I could have done even at my peak, I think. Um, and... So I was very impressed by that. Um, there's one on The Guardian, Hadley Freeman, is she called? Um, I admire. Um, there's 
Um, let me think. There's lots on the Observer I admire. Um, oh, I also admire Decker Aikenhead on The Guardian and Simon Hassenstone. Um, so, yeah, there are, some, there are some good interviews around. But there are also some very fluffy interviews, and they irritate me where they've just been told that their job is to plug the film. Right. And usually they're, you know, they're flown out to Hollywood. And often they're young, so they're sort of very excited to be flown out to Los Angeles and to be in the presence of a film star. And they don't notice that what they're writing is complete, boring, cotton wool rubbish. Which is interesting. Gay Talese um, brought this up recently in an interview that he did with Alec Baldwin. And you, you've interviewed the likes of, say, Kim Kardashian, who will be this generation's kind of mega celebrity. Yeah, yes, um, yes. And, and it, do you think the PR machine is too controlling and, and, and in the long run is going to damage the legacy of these new stars? Like people like Taylor Swift don't, will refuse to do these long form interviews, but in, in about 10, 15 years' time, they'll regret looking back and going, do you know what? Maybe. You, know, you should have done. Yeah, yeah, I think so. But I also have some sympathy with the idea that, because it used to be, I think Lady Gaga addressed this recently, that it used to be that if you wanted to sort of get a message out to your fans, um, then you did a newspaper interview and said those things and hoped that your fans read it. But now they're just directly in touch with their fans, so they don't need to do that. Um, and I can sort of see that, really. I think the ones who will actually miss it are probably our actors, because although they always go on at huge lengths about how they're so shy and they don't like talking about themselves and just, you know, study the work and you don't have to be interested in the person, of course, they're always incredibly keen to talk about themselves, Absolutely. often rather boringly. Um, and... So I don't know, but I mean, yes, I I don't think puff piece are worth doing, and I really resent the idea that it's the journalist's job to give publicity to whatever it is, you know, a film or something. Um, Lynn, last couple of questions, and thank you so much for your time. Um, yeah. One of the things that that, that do my research about you that 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 just jumps out as as a as a as a really kind of important moment in journalism say is regarding the story of Jimmy Savile and it, it, you know it's a very interesting case where everybody knew but yeah. nobody could and and you're you're meeting with him and your your conversation with him and the way that you you handle that was quite extraordinary well yes I had to be very careful what nobody seems to remember now is that that was a period when, I mean, newspapers obviously are always afraid of libel, but that was a period when libel settlements had gone insanely through the roof, you know. So lawyers would always stop you saying anything potentially libelous. So there's no way that you can say Jimmy Savile likes little girls unless you've actually you know, done months of research and got all the witnesses lined up equivalent to a court case, you know. Um, so I thought my way around it was pretty clever because um, at least I managed to float the idea yeah. and then I let him deny it, which you have to do, obviously. Um, I, I think I'd probably write it much the same today, actually. 
Absolutely. It's it's an extra and, and I'll put up a link on our show notes on the website to, to the actual conversation. It, it's just remarkable to read it now in, yeah. in twenty sixteen. In twenty sixteen. Yeah. Um Lynn, last couple of questions. Um and thank you again. Um what's the one question? And we ask this to all our guests, and this could be anything not just people that you've interviewed, but maybe a question about life or a question from about anything. What's the one question that you should have asked? but never did. You don't have to name names, but is there a question that you've always wanted to ask and you know what, you never went there? Um, um, no, I don't know. Well, um, once or twice I've sort of completely missed a trick. Um, I mean, I remember when I interviewed Rudolf Nureyev, he was practically spelling it out to me that he, He'd got AIDS, and for some reason, I just didn't think of asking it. Um, so, you know, that was very... Well, in fact, one's always missing a trick, you know. Um, but there isn't a sort of particular sort of do you believe in God question or something that I want to ask everyone, no. Okay. And, but is there a question that you'd like to ask yourself, that there's one question that you just, you know... And you don't have to name names or anything from your own life, but is there something that... There's 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 a, an answer out there somewhere to something you want to answer, but you never you never got that to get to ask that question. Uh, oh, um, possibly. I mean, a sort of slight regret in my life is that I did stay at Penthouse so long, and that I didn't really start in proper journalism until my late thirties, and I slightly wished I'd tried harder earlier. That's all. Okay. Well, Lynn, it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you. Well, thank um, you. Your, your, book, your book, A Curious Career, is, is really... And actually, just one more question. Do you feel about The Curious Career that, that you know, now that you've, that you've somewhat handcuffed yourself for future interviews because you've given the game away um, yes, with, your pl- with your playbook? I do rather feel that. I was writing it coming up to my 70th birthday and I assumed that I would have stopped work by the time um, the book came out. And then, in fact, you know, nobody suggested I should retire and I had no desire to retire, so I carried on. But, yes, I do feel I've sort of blown some of the secrets, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, listen, it's an absolute <laughs> pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much for your time. Oh, thank you. I hope that this view inspires future uh, media journalists and uh, I, I wish you well. Thank you for listening to this week's edition of The Outer View for RTE Radio 1 Extra. You can find out more about The Outer View at alanswan.com. 